Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Today, as we have said many ways this morning already, uh, is the first Sunday of Lent. And so all of the devotional practices that we're talking about, the liturgical differences, the different colors, all of these things are meant to disrupt the normal rhythms of our lives that lead us to simply existing uh, and not pondering the deeper and the real because of the tyranny of the urgent. This is a season of intentionality and preparation for hearing the glorious news of Christ's death and resurrection. It's a season of grace and a season of honesty and a season of doing the hard work of examining our lives for those things that are not of God, of the sin that exists in our lives so that we can confess those things and let Christ do His work of redemption. And the content of our preaching during Lent is meant to very intentionally encourage this process as well. And so before we get into the series itself, let me first examine with you what exactly preaching is. Standing here in this pulpit is more than public speaking. It's more than giving a lecture or leading a Bible study. When we read the Scripture, we see that God has chosen to work through the office of preacher to bring the transforming message of His gospel to the world for the saving of souls. From the beginnings of the books of Acts, we see Peter preaching a powerful sermon, all of the disciples out preaching the Word of God, even in different languages. And later on, these men would be described as unschooled, ordinary men. And yet, through their preaching, thousands of people come to the place of repentance and belief. As recently as a few weeks ago, an ordinary university student at Asbury Seminary, at Asbury University, excuse me, preached a very ordinary sermon. And it sparked a revival that has reached millions. God works through preaching. And this has been true for centuries. God divinely works through the preaching of his word to change hearts and minds. David, I'm sorry, Donald Coggan, who is a former Archbishop of Canterbury, said, Here is the miracle of the divine economy, that between the forgiveness of God and sin of man stands the preacher. That between the provision of God and the need of man stands the preacher. That between the truth of God and the quest of man stands the preacher. It is his task to link human sin to forgiveness, human need to divine omnipotence, human search to divine revelation. Something happens through preaching that is bigger than a person standing behind a wooden lectern. In 1 Corinthians, Paul describes his preaching by saying, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming, I, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. The office of preacher is no office of fame or of glory or of celebrity or of privilege. It is not an office that is either deserved or earned. 
To preach is to carry significant responsibility for the correctness of doctrine, for the conviction of sin, and for the care of souls. Anglican priest and poet George Herbert said that the preacher should seek to be known first, not as witty or learned or eloquent, but holy. Charles Spurgeon described George Whitfield's preaching by saying, He preached on, now thundering like Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and then comforting like Barnabas, son of encouragement. It is often said that the role of the preacher is to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. Week after week, leaders from our church stand in this pulpit to exhort all those who will listen. We've heard from eight different voices in the last nine weeks alone, and this pulpit is only one of millions across the world and tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions throughout history. And when those preachers preach properly and faithfully, there's, the message is always the same. We have one sermon. It's repackaged each week with different emphases and applications, but there is one central message. We must echo what Paul also said to the Corinthians I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. That's it. That's all we've got. We're one-trick ponies. We don't have anything else. It's the death and resurrection of Christ. It is there that we find our hope, our joy, our past, our future, our truth, and the power for transformation, for flourishing, and for new life. And so, the greatest pulpit of all, the most profound message ever preached, Preached by the greatest preacher of all was not preached from behind a wooden pulpit, but by a preacher nailed to a wooden cross. We have seven recorded statements uttered by the hanging and dying Christ, known historically as the seven last words of Christ, words meaning phrases. And when this preacher gazed out upon his congregation that day, he saw Roman soldiers who held a hammer that still dripped with his blood. He saw the mocking chief priests and Hebrew leaders who had handed him over to death. He saw a large group of his close followers way off in the distance, some of which had abandoned him. He saw a jeering crowd hurling insults at him. And at his feet, his mother, and a group of weeping faithful women, and the disciple John. And he preached to all of them. The greatest sermon ever preached from the greatest preacher who ever spoke from the greatest pulpit ever erected is only seven phrases long and spoken to believers and unbelievers alike. We would do well to lean in and listen to the quiet words of God himself as he hung dying with the weight of all human sin upon his shoulders. The final words of any dying person should carry profound interest for us. What? For what message do they use their last breath? What is so meaningful that of all the things they could say in their final moments, this is what they choose? And all the more should we listen when the dying speaker is the word of God himself made flesh. To describe the cross and the scene of this sermon in this way is not to create melodrama or heighten emotion in order to manipulate, 
but rather the Son of God in excruciating pain on the cross, put there by his obedience to God and his love for us and his desire for our salvation, is at the center of our faith as Christians. This stark and startling image is not one that we should avoid or turn away from, but rather to intentionally fix our gaze upon. What would motivate God to do this? What is happening in the heart and mind of Jesus why has what happened here changed the course of the entirety of human history? How have billions of lives been transformed by this moment? And what were the seven things that Jesus said in this moment of all moments? The study that we'll engage in from this pulpit, you and I together for the next six weeks up to and through Good Friday, is to bend our ear to the cross and let the seven most profound statements ever spoken transform our lives. As your rector, who I pray is guided by prayer and the Holy Spirit and his leadership of this church, I see two hopes for this time together over the next number of weeks. One, that each of us will grow in our love for Jesus, that we will be convicted of our sins, that we, believe we will be willed to confess it, that we may all the more receive his grace and be remade in his image or for some to come for the first time to the knowledge and love of Jesus as their Savior, to repent, believe, and be baptized, to know the nearness of God and the depths of his love and the family of his people. And number two, I believe that the Lord is doing a profound thing at Redeemer. I believe he has much to do in us and through us, and that there is great blessing to be poured out and there's a community to renew outside of these walls. There's a future for this church that will result in glorifying God and the transformation of lives. And to be ready for this next season of our life together with God, we need to prepare our hearts to receive what he wishes to do. All great revivals, renewals, outpourings of the Spirit, seasons of great fruit have begun with repentance and prayer and seeking the heart of God. And so as we lean in closely, as we, as we bend our ears to the lips of Jesus, here's the first thing we hear him say from the cross, from Luke 23, 34. After he has been tried, whipped and beaten until his flesh hung from his body like ribbons, mocked with insults and a crown of thorns, forced to carry his cross, weakened and falling time after time, after nails were driven through his wrists and his feet, and he was lifted into the air, hanging between two condemned criminals. Jesus' first words were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Many people have been crucified. The Romans were good at it. Just a hundred years before this moment, they quelled a slave revolt led by Spartacus, and they crucified 6,000 of his followers along the 120 miles of the Appian Way. They always cried out. Anyone who would be murdered and tortured in this way always cried out in pain or an insult of their executioners and the crowd that would gather to jeer them. The person on the cross in their anguish often said such horrible things that their tongues were actually removed to keep them from scandalizing the people who walked by. So when Jesus took a breath to speak, everyone listened. They were ready for him to break, to curse, to scream, and no one but his followers expected this. 
Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. First, he addresses the most important listener of any sermon, God himself. Jesus addresses him with a turn of relationship and endearment. Father, this is no distant, cruel God. This is a son speaking to his father. And in doing so, Jesus establishes his identity. The son of God, the father, one in trinity, one in nature, one in relationship with him, one with the father and one who loves and is loved by the father. The reason the cross is important is because of who died on it. The story of the Bible, the story of the history of redemption that we recall every time we share the Eucharist is this, that in his infinite love, God created us for himself. And when we had sinned against him and become subject to evil and death, the Lord in his mercy sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our salvation. This, hanging on the cross, is God himself. God himself made one of us through his incarnation, the God of all glory and power and majesty, creator of the universe, sustainer of all things, Lord of the angels, high king of heaven, the source of all beauty and love and by whose power every electron orbits its nucleus and every planet orbits its sun. Scandal of all scandals, this is the one who is on the cross. Make no mistake, friends, the cross is first about God his incomprehensible glory and goodness. That the one who created us would become one of us to die for us in order to save his creation. This is the God who deserves all glory and honor and praise and majesty and devotion. And so what does this son say? Does he ask God out of retribution and protection and wrath to consume his torturers with fire? He has every right to do so. Unjustly accused, tried in a travesty of justice. Those whom he has served and healed now insulting him. This God of glory with one utter syllable could inflict pain and death upon those who would oppose him. But no. He says... Father, forgive them. Hear words that should ring from every mountain and valley to every corner of the earth. The words that save humanity, forgive them. His posture towards us is one of compassion, of love, of reconciliation, of grace. Truly, neither these words nor his affection is deserved. The sound of his voice covered the Romans casting lots for his clothes. The disciples who abandoned him, his mother in her grief, the thieves on either side of him, the Jewish leaders who had him murdered, and they reached through the centuries to you and to me. Forgive them. If his forgiveness is aimed at those who have caused his pain, who have sinned against him, then his words are for us as well. What does God do with the public and private sins of our lives, the hurt and pain that we have caused others, ourselves, and him? What does he do with our pride, our vanity, our greed, our excuses, our anger, our sexual immorality? He dies to pay the penalty for them, and he forgives us. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they do. 
He is not saying here that ignorance is an excuse. He is saying that in our sinful and separated state, we cannot fathom the true depths of what has occurred on the cross or the great theft and crime that is our sin. We severely underestimate the significance of our sin. Our sin is not private, nor it is only earthly. We have stolen the glory that God deserves. We have disobeyed his holy laws and in the process have corrupted and destroyed God's creation. All pain and anguish in the world is a result of our sinful rebellion against him. And now we even create false and deceitful narratives that worship our feelings, our identities, our desires, our covetousness, and our greed. We celebrate these things as righteous and good. We commit sins of commission and omission, and we are sinners in our very nature. Our crimes are greater than we could ever imagine, and their reach and significance beyond our grasp of comprehension. And there on the cross, with the entirety of human sin on his shoulders, yours, mine, the Romans at his feet, his chosen people who rejected him, all of humanity, Jesus says, forgive them. Every sermon throughout the year unpacks this truth. The implications of God's grace for us. Through repentance and belief and baptism, you are made new. No sin of ours is greater than those who pounded the... And yet he speaks forgiveness to them and to you. Your shame is removed by Christ's shame. Your penalty by Christ's penalty. Your sin by Christ's sacrifice. You have been granted freedom from the deserved wrath of God, from the penalty of sin that is death itself. You have been rescued, redeemed, renewed, because he said, Father, forgive them. And our response to these words Repentance and belief. Entrance into the people of God through baptism. Worship. To live a life participating with his ongoing presence in his spirit. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. To forgive others as you have been forgiven. For no sin against you is greater than the sin that you have committed against God. All else pales in comparison And this forgiveness allows us to be free from the shackles of those who would seek to enslave us through their abuse and sin against us. Christ's grace can let us break cycles of generations of sin in our own lives, in our families, in our society, and our world. This is why hell trembles, why demons shudder, and why the wicked cower at the sound of the name of Jesus Christ. For the moment that he utters these words, life has been given to those who are dying and death is given to death itself. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He deserves our worship, our worship in song, our worship in sacrament, our worship in praise, our worship with our hands and our bodies and our worship as we devote our lives to him for he has saved us and forgiven us. So what does all this mean? What does it mean for us? 
we must share is humility. To come face to face with the reality of the shame of sin, to know its depths, the profound crime of stealing the glory of God, twisting his image, hurting his creation, what we have done and left undone, how we have not loved God with all our whole hearts and not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We need to tear down our fragile walls of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and hyper-individualism and be forgiven. Totally, completely, utterly, absolutely forgiven. We do not deserve forgiveness any more than Christ deserved death, but because of his death, we are given the merits of his life. You are seen as righteous in the eyes of God. You are forgiven. Be released. Set it down. Be healed. Lift your hands and your hearts in worship to the God who has washed away your shame and fills you with joyful freedom. Forgive them, Jesus asked, and forgive them, the Father has done. And now we go tell others. We tell others because Jesus has sent others to tell us. We love others because Christ first loved us. We serve them to show Christ's service. We relieve their suffering because Christ has done so for us. We forgive our enemies because Christ has forgiven us. We work for the flourishing of others because Christ has come for our flourishing at great expense to himself, even when we didn't and instead hung him on a cross when he came to give it to us. The impossible has happened. The sin that we thought was inseparably bound to us, all of our failures and weakness and misdeeds and neglect, all of the sin that has been done to us and been done through us, we have been set free by these words. Father, forgive them. May the profound love of God and the absolute completeness of his forgiveness be yours today. And may the Father to whom Jesus spoke still hear your prayers today. Call out to him, speak to him, honor him, be transformed by him. If you are a Christian, may you be all the more compelled in your love for Jesus. May you be in awe of what has been done for you, the price that has been paid for your salvation and the glory that awaits you, all because of what Christ has done. And may your heart explode with joy and worship of him. May his gospel pervade every aspect of your life, in your family, in your work, in your politics, in your profession, in your free time. May you be consumed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and all his glory and goodness and grace. And for those in here who do not yet believe, who have not yet given your life over to Jesus, I pray that you will hear these words that Jesus speaks over you. Father, forgive them. Come to the one who has created you, the one who wants to redeem you in your sin, the one who wants to forgive you and let you know his love to bring you into his family so that never again will you be alone. Come to know this Jesus who thought of you even while on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. Repent, believe, be baptized. 
Know this good and abundant life that the Lord has called you to by his death in your stead. And so, friends, may we be a church cut to the heart by this gospel. And may the reality of these words ring in our hearts and minds this day and every day. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Pray with me. Father, in our sinful state, we, we don't even, we can't even recognize all the sin that is in our lives and We've been conditioned by this world to not want to talk about these things, to think that we are, we are all okay and everything's just all right, but we know in our heart of hearts that that is just not true, that we need healing, that we need mending, that we are wounded by fault of ourselves and by the deeds of others, and it is beyond our capacity to heal ourselves. And so, Father, we rest on faith in the words of your Son, when he begged you for our forgiveness. Let the reality of that forgiveness steal away our shame. Remove the weight of anxiety from our shoulders. Remove the sense of separation and pain. And let us know your love and your righteousness and your holiness in your goodness. Convict us even now of particular sins in our lives that we are holding and worshiping even before we hold and worship you. Let us confess those things to you. Let us truly repent of those things. And then let us, when the weight of those sins feel too much more for us to carry, let us feel the release of your total forgiveness. Father, forgive us, for we do not know what we are doing. And you do know what we're doing, and yet still you have grace. Transform lives and hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.